Good morning. Hey, glad that you're here with us this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15. As we get started, I'll kind of tell you a little bit about this chapter. Uh, the concept we're going to kind of read about is decisions. Uh, and many of us are uh, faced every day with making many different decisions. Fun decisions, mundane decisions, seemingly irrelevant decisions, exciting decisions. In his book, The Places to Go, John Ortberg cites a study, and in this study, he says that the average person makes about 70 decisions a day. So 70 decisions each day, conscious decisions, choices that you need to make, decisions that you're faced with, which equates to 25,550 choices a year. So think about that. 25,550 different choices, decisions that you make every year. So if you live to be 70 years old, that's 1,788,500 different decisions that you make in your life that form and shape who you are and who you're becoming. As uh, Albert Camus once said, life is the sum of our choices. Now, uh, do you remember when Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and he likened following him to a fork in the road of sorts? A choice to make. When he's preaching, he says, in order to follow me, you need to understand something. And he says these words. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Decisions, decisions, decisions. Lots of decisions that we make every single day of our lives. A couple of years ago now, uh, not quite a couple of years ago, but a while back, my wife and I decided to take our four children and our golden retriever, Sadie, and go to Eagle Creek Park and go on a hike. Now, one thing to understand about what I'm about to tell you is we are not experienced hikers, okay? That's not, at the time, we hadn't been on very many hikes. We've gone on a few since, but then we hadn't. And so we decided to find a really easy hike that would feel more like a walk, like we could go on a nice walk out in nature as a family. And so we decided to do that. And the path that we chose out there at Eagle Creek uh, was one that we concluded that our two-year-old would be fine to walk on his own with us. And so we made that decision. All right, that was the first decision that was made. As we're on this path, and if you've been to Eagle Creek, you know that they have uh, signs along the path that will tell you the color of the trail that you're on and which direction to go. And so we come to our first fork in the road. Are we going to go this direction or that direction? Well, we looked at the sign and the sign said, hey, this trail that you're on is going this way. And so we decided to go that way. And we are walking on this trail. Well, we came to a sign that the inexperienced hikers had not experienced before that confused us. And we couldn't tell which direction our path really was. And so uh, we had a decision to make. We came to this fork in the road and we had a choice to make and we made the decision. And we continued to hike and enjoy it. We were having good conversation, laughing, and doing all kinds of different things. Everybody was happy. But about two and a half hours later, uh, after choosing the wrong path, my wife and I come out of the woods onto the road at Eagle Creek and decide we're just going to stay on the road at this point. And we finally made our way back to our car, drenched in sweat, cramping, because our two-year-old had come to the point that we like to say where he reached his limit. He'd reached his limit, and that was about an hour into the hike. And so for about an hour and a half, we just traded him. Your turn, your turn. Make sure the dog's all right. We're out of water. We don't have enough for the dog. And we went on this adventure and finally came out a little bit more experienced in hiking than we had bargained for when we started this. Decisions. Everybody's faced with these fork-in-the-road type decisions where you come and you have to make a choice. You have to make a decision about what path to walk down. 
what direction you're going to go. And Acts chapter 15 presents us with two examples of a fork in the road moment for the church. These two different examples. And Luke, who's writing the book of Acts as a history book for us, tells us, he contrasts these two fork in the road moments. The first one comes as uh, we're told there in the beginning of Acts chapter 15 that Paul and Barnabas, remember Paul and Barnabas, they're on these missionary journeys together. Uh, They're two really good friends that have gone from city to city planting churches. Well, they're uh, hunkered down in a city called Antioch, and they're going to be ministering, pastoring these people, teaching them. When all of a sudden, a group of teachers show up in town and begin to have influence among the church. And Luke tells us in Acts chapter 15 that they were teaching. They're known as the Judaizers. Let me explain just in, in real brief terms what that means is they came along and they introduced a teaching that said that in order to be saved, in order to become a Christian, you first had to be circumcised and then you had to submit yourself to the Levitical law system. And so you really had to become a Jew and live like a Jew in order to then be allowed to be saved and become a Christian. Well, Paul and Barnabas take issue with this. And they begin, the text tells us there in Acts chapter 15 to debate these guys. Like, hey, that's not true. And now they come to this fork in the road. Are we going to move on with our missionary journeys? Just try to clarify this here in this town. Or are we going to choose a different path? We really need to make a decision here. And so Paul and Barnabas decide to hit pause. We'll get back to that in a moment. Pause on their missionary journey. And they head up to Jerusalem. And they call a theological conference of sorts. Theology is the study of God. And so they're going to they're call a theological, the details of what it means to be a Christian. They're going to call the church leaders together and have a theological conference. Now, note to self, okay? This is just a side note. Theological conferences are boring. <laughs> Even for the people that claim to love them. At some point, you're at this conference and it's one paper after another paper if you've ever been to one. And, and some of it's fascinating and interesting, but eventually it just weighs on you. But they decide, hey, instead of continuing on the journey, we need to have a meeting with the church leaders. And so they head up to Jerusalem. And all these church leaders gather there in Jerusalem. And you read about this in Acts chapter 15. At this theological conference where they're trying to decide where does the church stand when it comes to this teaching that you had to become Jewish, you had to be circumcised and and submit to the law in order to become a Christian. Where does the church stand on this issue? That was the fork in the road that the church had come to. Will we succumb to the cultural pressure to add this teaching to the church? Or will we stand firm on what we know to be true? And so they gather together at a fork in the road moment in the life of the church, knowing that whatever's decided here has consequences and implications for the future of the church. Well, first up is Peter. And you read about this. Peter stands up and we've, we've heard from Peter many times. He likes to talk. He talks a lot. He gets up and he presents in front of all of the church leaders why they need to choose a certain path, which would be not to include that teaching. We need to keep the gospel pure. The gospel is for everyone. You don't have to do these things in order to get to Jesus. And he presents that. Well, next up is our tag team missionary partners, Paul and Barnabas, and they stand up. These two buddies that have been planting churches together, and they get up and they explain everything that they had experienced there in Antioch. And they say, hey, we've had this issue come up. And while talking there, there's a group in Jerusalem from the, from the background of being Pharisees who were now Christians who begin to advocate for this teaching that, yes, you should include this. Paul and Barnabas present why we shouldn't include this. Then finally, James, who his history tells us is kind of the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. He stands up and he presents. And the church, having come to this fork in the road, has to make this decision, and they make a decision. They choose a path. At what point or what direction are we going to go as a church? Where are we going to land? And what are the implications of that? Well, Acts chapter 15, verse 19 tells us, James says these words, It is my judgment, therefore, 
that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Hey, the decision is that we should not make it hard for those who are Gentiles to become Christians. We, We should not do that. And so that's where they land. They stand firm. When faced with this fork in the road decision, they have an opportunity here to stand for what they knew to be true or to go the direction of, man, there's so much pressure. What's the big deal? Let's just add this teaching. And they choose wisely. They choose to stay theologically accurate. Now, this brings me back to a question I wrestled with this week in my study of this text. And the question is this, why hit pause on such a successful missionary journey? That's what Paul and Barnabas do. It's like they hit pause. They're in this town and they're getting ready to go from city to city to plant churches. And they're seeing success after success and difficulty and hardship, but they're together. And there's this momentum behind their missionary journey. Why hit pause, travel all the way to Jerusalem and really lose a lot of that momentum that you had? Why would they do that? Like, why would any of us do that? Why not instead say, let's just handle our difference here. We don't need to call a whole church conference here. Let's just actually handle it right here in this city, tell them what they need to believe and be on our way. But for some reason, they were both convinced, no, everybody's going to have to have clarity about this. And so they head to Jerusalem. I'm convinced the reason they did that was that Paul and Barnabas understood that theological accuracy is vital for missional success theological accuracy. So understanding why you believe what you believe about what the Bible teaches to be solid theologically is vital for the mission to be successful. So if we're going to go on and plant churches, we need to be teaching and training Christians to be theologically educated, to understand what does the Bible teach about this. Now, for me, I, as I survey discipleship, particularly in our country, in our culture today, I think this is lacking. Oftentimes, we are not discipling people to be theologically strong, to be theologically accurate in why they believe what they believe, to be able to talk about their beliefs. As a matter of fact, don't answer this out loud, but when you describe the church that you go to, what is it that you say? How is it that you describe your interaction with with the church family that you're part of? I've seen this kind of gap, this fork in the road, oftentimes where uh, many different people are faced with a decision where does my belief, do my beliefs really? I think most of us would say, amen. Yes, absolutely. We should absolutely understand why we believe what we believe and always choose that way. And many of you in your head are probably saying, yeah, that's right, we should. And here's the deal though. It's one thing to form your convictions around your understanding of God. It's a whole different ballgame to live it out. It's a whole different ballgame to begin making the hard decisions in life that may have consequences that you don't like based on the convictions that you have about what the Bible teaches. I've seen this throughout my years in ministry. I've seen it in premarital counseling. You've got a couple, and I do a lot of premarital counseling, and you, do a, you have this couple, and I'm just going to use this as the example. It could go either way. Don't email me, okay? The young lady, raised in the church, strong family, understands what the Bible teaches, everything's good. Man, she just really has a firm faith. She meets and falls in love with this young man, and she just can't. She's just head over heels. It's so cute, and they just are so happy. And mom and dad just really like him. He's a good man and he's not in debt and he makes good money and he can take care of my daughter. So, and, and so they come and they want to talk about getting married and come to find out this guy claims to be a Christian but doesn't live it out. Or a different scenario is he is a Christian but he comes from a different theological background than this young lady. And so most of the time, the conversation as I'm listening is it's close enough. I mean, they're a Christian, close enough. We don't believe all the same things, but whatever, no big deal. 
And what I've seen is a lack of conviction around wanting to have that hard conversation. Not a conversation I can have for them, but they, they don't desire to have the hard talk. Why? Because they're scared that if we don't agree what it might mean. See, what happens when we don't choose that fork in the road wisely is we begin to compromise. We begin to make decisions just on kind of what we like. And before we know it, we're drifting. And before you know it, you look up and you've drifted so far from Jesus, you don't recognize it. I've seen this also in church leadership. Many pastors, many people that desire to grow a platform or grow a church numerically will water down. And actually, I don't even think the best term is watered down in our world today. I think it's they use vague and uncertain language around deep theological truths because they don't want to make anyone upset. They don't dive into the deep end and handle the difficult parts of what the Bible has to teach. Most leadership conferences, I don't know if you're aware of this, for people that do what I do for a living, people that are pastors or preachers or teachers, most of our conferences are leadership conferences with leadership technique with rarely, if ever, a presentation on theological truth. I've seen this in the church. I've seen many people choose to be a part of a church family based on the fact that the pastor's engaging or the music is good or my kids are happy and I'll go anywhere as long as my children are happy. They like this youth group over that youth group and so we're gonna go there and we'll deal with anything else that we have to come across. We'll compromise on our theology because our kids are happy. When we, back in 2016, did our REACH initiative, many of you are familiar with that, others that are not familiar with that, we did a big initiative as a church to, to do a lot uh, around here. Uh, we, we just we made a lot of different changes, and one of them was the physical aesthetics of the building. We did a com- kind of complete overhaul of the building. And we brought in a consulting group, a, a consultant, to talk to us about that. And they told us, hey, when you're thinking about doing anything to your church building where your people are going to gather, you need to really, uh, people choose a church. And they said, based on all the study from all around the country, they choose a church based on two things, most people. I found it fascinating. They said the number one thing they're going to choose is they're going to see are the bathrooms clean. I don't know if you knew that, but most of America, the first thing on their mind when they're choosing a church is they come in and are the bathrooms clean. Now, I'm all about, I don't like gas station bathrooms with the best of them, but like that's not usually on my mind. The second thing is this, are their kids having fun? Is the kids' ministry fun for the children? Now, again, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But nowhere in any of the research was it presented that people choose a church based on their theological convictions. And that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because the young couple that decides to compromise on their beliefs are up against some conflict. I go from doing premarital counseling to marriage counseling quickly when they can't make that choice. It breaks my heart for church leaders who will answer to God for the vagueness that they intentionally presented to their people when it came to a fork in the road in their leadership about what to teach and not teach their people. And it breaks my heart for people who choose a church family based on the comfort and convenience that they experience because the storm is coming. And when it comes, where will their foundation have been? See, forks in the road are important. Decisions have consequences. They always do. And I think that Paul understood we have to hit pause because this is so vitally important to the missional success of our life. And if the Bible teaches, which it does, that we are all missionaries, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that when, when God saved you, he sent you. So if we're all missionaries, then theological accuracy would be vital to our own personal missional success as it is to the church as well. And so Paul decides, hey, I'd like to go back and I want to meet with the different churches. 
And they do, and they meet, and they, they make this de- decision, and, and man, they're theologically accurate from this moment on. It's so good. And man, the gospel's for everyone. We're not putting any stipulations on the gospel. It's for everybody. And man, the church fought for unity. They got unity. God blessed their unity. And now Acts chapter 15 kind of shifts gears, and Luke begins to tell us about what happens when two people, two Christians, face a conflict, a fork in the road, and they don't choose the same path. Now what? See, this is the presentation of, of what takes place with Paul and Barnabas, two friends that have been together for so long. They face the fork in the road in Jerusalem. Man, they got on the same path. It was so good. What happens when they can't see eye to eye? Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all of the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Sometime later here, uh, the translation here is probably indicating a a longer period of time. So they are up in Jerusalem. They get this all settled. They come back down to Antioch and they're in Antioch and they spend a good amount of time pastoring and teaching the people, correcting that bad theology. They've got to really correct course and train people up and get leaders ready. And somewhere along that, in that journey, Paul gets this idea Okay, we've planted a lot of churches and we're having to work really hard here in Antioch and spend a lot of time correcting some things. Why don't we go back and visit these other churches? Why don't we go back? And I think personally, he's wanting to go back and make sure that these false teachers hadn't infiltrated the other churches to check on them to say, are you making the right choice when you're faced with a fork in the road to train up the leaders? He really just wants to see are the churches that I love and care about, are they okay? And this becomes a theme in his ministry. I really think this this Acts 15 had a huge impact on Paul because now when he writes letters, most of your New Testament is letters that Paul would write to churches to see how they were doing. And almost all of them, he asks, he he reminds them of the importance of teaching. Look at how he says this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He writes to the church at Thessalonica and he says this, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. How do you test something if you're not solid already? You must have the filter that you're putting things through. You must test them. So he says, test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. He'll write to Timothy, who's doing ministry in Ephesus, and he reminds him in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says this, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus for what reason? Why stay in Ephesus, Timothy? So that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines anymore. Well, how can you command someone to teach a false doctrine if you're not solidified in a true doctrine? He says, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, meaning watch out because this world will convince people to choose a certain path when they're faced with a fork in the road. And he says, I need you to make sure they're choosing the right path. It seems clear that the fork in the road at the beginning of Acts chapter 15 had a big impact on Paul. And so he goes to Barnabas and Barnabas is all in. You remember, they've been traveling at this point for 10 years together. 10 years planting churches together, 10 years living side by side, 10 years teaching, 10 years pastoring, 10 years equipping, 10 years moving from city to city. They've got a really incredible friendship and a lot of ministry success. And so Paul says, Barnabas, let's do this, man. Let's go check on all these churches and make sure everything is good. And Barnabas is like, yes, I'm all in, but I have a request. Look at what he says, verse 37. And Paul, I'm in on this, but Luke tells us Barnabas wanted to take John, who was also called Mark with them. Yeah, but Paul didn't think this was a wise choice because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas, and he left commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. There's another fork in the road. 
One of the things that this text does for us, just these simple verses does, is it reminds us that Paul and Barnabas, while inspired, were human. So when faced with different forks in the road, faced with different decisions, that consequences would spiral in certain directions in their life for good or bad, their human emotion, their sinful nature played into their decision-making, just like it does with us. They were not perfect. And so when certain decisions came based on their experiences, based on their feelings, based on their emotions, things might flare up and certain decisions would be made. And for Barnabas, this fork in the road is a clear one. We bring John Mark with us. Now, the word that says he wanted to bring John Mark, that word is a Greek word. And when you translate it out, it's not just a desire like, hey, I really want this. It'd be really cool. It's a strategic design, meaning he intentionally had a plan for Mark and he wanted him to come on this trip for a purpose. That was why he wanted to bring him. Now, I got to ask the question, what's the purpose? Why would you want to bring this guy? Because he deserted you last time. Not only did he desert you, but he put you in a really difficult situation and both of you suffered because of it. In fact, Paul almost dies. He's physically beaten to the point where they were convinced he was dead and they leave him for dead. Why would you want to bring the guy that bailed on that mission? I think it's because Barnabas had a gift. Do you remember what his name means? The name Barnabas means son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. Barnabas had the ability to see potential where few would or could. I mean, look at what he did with the apostle Paul. You remember Saul in Acts chapter 9? We studied that a few weeks back. If you're not familiar with it, before he became the apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who was on a mission to not just stop the church, but to kill Christians. That was his goal. And he's on this mission. Well, then he becomes a Christian. He's baptized in the Christ. And after he's baptized in the Christ, he desires to go and meet the other church leaders who want nothing to do with extending him a warm welcome. Are you kidding me? You just, you were killing Christians. We want nothing to do with you. And who was it that stuck his neck out for Paul? Barnabas. Who was it that defended him in front of all the other church leaders? Who was it that put his own reputation on the line because he saw potential in Paul where nobody else could see potential, where nobody else was willing to see potential? Barnabas looked out and he saw in Paul what could be and he stuck his neck out for him. In addition to that, when the churches decided to go on mission and plant churches in different areas, what was it that Barnabas did? Well, he travels to Tarsus, Saul's hometown, Paul's hometown, and he goes on a manhunt for him because he says, I want him to come and be a part of this, and that's exactly what he does. And so this fork in the road for Barnabas, it's really simple. We bring John Mark because for all we know, he could be the next apostle Paul. He just needs the right people to pour into him, Paul. He just needs the right people to believe in him. Yeah, he messed up, but a failure is not the end of the road. I mean, I can just picture it. Remember, this is not a pleasant conversation that they're having. So Barnabas saying, are you kidding me, Saul? Are you kidding me? Like, Paul, do you not remember over 10 years ago when nobody wanted your ministry to succeed? Who was it that stuck up for you? Who was it that believed in you? Who was it that supported you? And who is it that has journeyed with you for 10 years in planting these churches? This isn't about what you want. This is about what I can see. We need to bring him with us. But Paul wasn't having any of it. See, for Paul, this fork in the road was pretty easy for him too because for Paul, it was, this is the guy that deserted us. This is the guy, look at the scars. Look at the beating that I endured. Look at what we had to go through that he didn't have to go through. And when it got tough, he bailed on us. And culturally speaking, Paul's lining right up with the culture of the day. Ancient people, if you read ancient literature over and over again, they will talk about how it is not a wise decision to entrust something important to somebody who has already failed, who has already proved to not be trustworthy. As a matter of fact, teachers, when they were writing curriculum in the ancient world, would oftentimes work into the curriculum tricks to trick their students to see, will they be loyal or will they not? And Mark had failed. 
And so for Paul, it was about loyalty and follow through. And if you're not going to be loyal and you're not going to follow through, we can't bring you. For Paul, the fork in the road is easy. This mission's too important. Evangelizing the Gentiles and, and checking on our churches is far too important to be distracted by someone who's going to desert us again. He's not coming. And boom. Two great men, two great leaders cannot see eye to eye. They cannot come to an agreement. And understand... Luke does not describe this disagreement as a pleasant, well, I don't agree. Well, I don't agree. Well, let's find the best possible solution to, to the glory of the Lord. And you come, hey, what about this? Okay, that's a great idea. I'm not coming with you and you're not going with me. Let's be strategic. That's not what he says. He says it was a heated disagreement. It was an emotional conversation. It was anger and frustration in this. So much so that they could not see eye to eye and they part different ways. So this text is not so much about faking it. It's about being real. What happens when two Christians cannot see eye to eye, and they have a conflict. Well, the text gives us some lessons, three quick lessons I want to walk through with you from this text. First one is this. Conflict is never a good thing. Conflict is never a good thing, but God can bring good from it. We know that conflict is not a good thing. It pained. This, this dispute between Paul and Barnabas did not make God happy. It grieved God's heart. It's the same way that all of our conflict together, all of it always grieves the heart of God. But can he use it? Absolutely he can, but it's not what he desires. He would have enjoyed instead Paul and Barnabas at this fork in the road fighting for the unity that they had just experienced in Jerusalem. Like, are you kidding me? You guys just experienced this unity where the church fought for unity, came to an agreement, and now you can't seem to grab onto that memory and fight for unity here and instead part separate ways. This grieved God's heart. We know that because look at the prayer of Jesus in John 17, the night that he was betrayed. He says these words. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning not just for the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So I'm praying desperately. One of the most important prayers of Jesus' life was for the unity of the church. Why? May they also be in us so that in their unity, the watching world would know and believe that you have sent me. The unity of the church is one of the most powerful apologetics in a culture that embraces conflict and division. Jesus wants the church and wants Christians to choose unity every time. But what happens when we can't? What happens when we just can't see eye to eye and we're stubborn and we put our feet in the sand? I'm not moving and I'm not moving. Well, what do we do here? What happens when conflict divides? God can still work. Though the divorce of Barnabas and Saul, it's unfortunate. God still really worked powerfully through it. Barnabas takes John Mark and he heads to his hometown where he had already led in the mission and he checks on churches there. Well, Paul takes Silas, who happens to be a Roman citizen, and in the very next chapter of the book of Acts, that citizenship plays a role in mission success. God still worked powerfully through both of them, but it grieves his heart in the same way. What about us? When conflict just can't seem to be overcome, do we really believe that God can still use it and work powerfully through it? Though it grieves his heart, he's still moving. Lesson number two, Paul and Barnabas chose different paths, but they did not hate one another as a result. If you don't remember anything else that I've said today, remember this, as we enter into one of the most hostile and difficult seasons, understand this, that when two Christians disagree, they can, they can not come to an agreement, and when they part ways, don't have to spew hatred at one another. Paul does not. Spew hatred about Barnabas to all the other churches. Paul does not go and revisit the churches and say, hey, before we go any further, before I teach you anything, let me remind you about what Barnabas just did to me. 
Make sure when he visits the church, you remind him how wrong he was. Make sure when he, they don't gossip, they don't slander, he doesn't run his name through the mud. Neither one of them. As a matter of fact, the only time we hear about Barnabas from Paul again, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and Galatians chapter 2, what he does is speaks kindly of him. Can you imagine that? We've come to a sharp disagreement. But anytime I talk about you outside of your presence, it's going to be good. I just can't even imagine. Now, I know in our culture, we don't really understand, you know, what it means to really be upset with somebody and actually maybe, you know, write about it online or tell the whole world about it. But in that day and age, that was a big deal. Sharp disagreements for him to leave the presence of Barnabas and to only speak kindly about him, only to point out the good qualities, to never remind, like, we don't read about this conflict again from Paul's. Paul doesn't write about this again. He doesn't come back and say, man, we're just on different pages. We just saw things differently. So what about us? What happens when you disagree with somebody? When you have a sharp disagreement, you just cannot believe that they believe what they believe, and you cannot believe they're making the choices that they're making. How do you respond? How do you respond when you're sitting at your keyboard or you're holding your phone in your hand and you're getting ready to post something? You understand that Christians can have disagreements. Some are pro-mask, some are anti-mask. Some right here in the room today, pro-mask, anti-mask. How do you respond? How do you talk about them? Some Christians are Republicans. Other Christians are Democrats. And in the season we're about to enter into, how do you respond? How do you write about it? How do you talk about it? You spew hatred, violating the very prayer of Jesus, that the way that they approached unity, the way that they approached conflict would show a watching world that it's believable that I'm good and true. Or are we keyboard warriors where we're going to spew all the hatred and discord that we possibly can because we're right and the rest of the world is wrong? Christians can part ways and not spew hatred. Lesson number three, if we are willing, there is always a lesson to be learned from conflict. This is just my observation from all of this, but I think the person who had the most maturing to do in this conflict was Paul. I say that because later on he... He'll leave with Silas. So he takes Silas and Judas, the good one, not the dead one, and they go on this journey. And he picks up another companion named Timothy. It's a young kid. Later on, he'll send Timothy to a city called Ephesus, a city that meant a lot to the Apostle Paul. We read about it in Acts chapter 19. And he'll send Timothy to Ephesus for the purpose that we just read, to teach these people, to take care of them, to make sure they're not falling, pray, and when they're faced with a fork in the road, they choose the right thing. But Timothy struggled. Matter of fact, we learned that Timothy had such struggles with the leadership in Ephesus because the culture was pressing in on them so heavy that he developed stomach problems, like really severe bad stomach problems. And then Paul decides it's time for me to write these letters to Timothy. And when you read the tone of 1 and 2 Timothy, it takes on a different tone than that which he spoke about John Mark. All of a sudden, somewhere along on the journey, his heart softened. And he didn't see the failures of Timothy as disqualifiers for the mission. Instead, he takes on the tone of a spiritual father and he begins to speak to Timothy like, hey, take some wine, calm your stomach down. Hey, remember your mother and your grandmother. Remember that when we gathered around you and we laid hands on you and you're empowered with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Timothy, you got this. You're not disqualified. You can do this. You can lead this way. He takes on the role of a spiritual father and doesn't discount him for his failures. In addition to that, Paul would later write at the end of his life and the end of 2 Timothy, he'll make a request of Timothy Paul's been left in prison by himself and he asks Timothy to send him somebody. And he says specifically there, the end of 2 Timothy, he says, would you send John Mark? The same John Mark. And he doesn't say, would you send John Mark because I feel so bad about the way I treated him all those years ago. 
No, that's not what he says. He says, would you send John Mark because he's useful to me in ministry? The very reason he discounted him is the very reason he calls for him. I think his heart had changed. And the same thing's true for us. When we enter into seasons of conflict where we don't see eye to eye with people, when we enter into a place where there's a sharp dispute, there's always a lesson to be learned. Can I tell you, I've been here a little over 12 years and I've made a, a lot of really bad choices in this church. I don't think it's a mistake to say I've probably hurt a lot of people. And I live with that a lot, but I also had a group of people that didn't quit didn't discount me, invested in me, the way Barnabas did to Paul and the way Barnabas did to John Mark. And it changed my life forever. I am a better man. I'm a better dad. I'm a better husband. I'm a better preacher. I'm a better minister because of that. And in the midst of conflict and in the midst of disagreement, there are always lessons that we can learn. But the question for us is this. If we are faced with a fork in the road, a choice to be made that will influence greatly what happens in our life. What path will we choose? And do we believe that God will always continually work? And do we believe that when we choose that path, there is lessons to be learned on the journey? But the decision on what path to take, that's yours. Let's pray. God, thank you for hard, difficult texts that remind us how good you are. God, conflict is never easy, but it is so comforting to know that you are working all the time. And God, it's good to know, Father, that you'll continually allow us to learn valuable lessons. You will teach us all along the way. It's good to have a reminder that through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, when we disagree with one another, we don't have to hate. And we can follow the teachings of Jesus and we can love, yes, love our brothers and sisters, but also love those who we would count as enemies. So no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what path we end up choosing, Father, would you help us to love others? We ask for that in Jesus' name.